Good morning. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning, and that's a, seeing that team up here is a great introduction to what we're talking about as we continue on in our series about Christian hospitality. Um, before we go into it too far, though, I'd like to ask you just to think back about a time when you have been the newcomer, when you have been the one on the outside, when you were welcomed well. Can you think of an example of a time when somebody welcomed you We've moved around a lot, um, including 10 years in foreign countries, and when I think of welcomers, one of the people who comes to mind is my friend Carmen, who was an Italian woman who took it upon herself to come and visit me weekly for quite a long season and um, spend time in my home helping me in my bumbling language learning and also answering silly questions I had about Italian culture. She is the one who came to my house and explained to me that having popcorn was essential for having a children's birthday party. And she helped me understand why Italian children screamed when I asked them to take off their shoes. Um, she was the one who helped me figure out how to go to the market without getting swindled, among many other lessons. Carmen was crucial in my adjustment. I also think about my friend Mo here in Minneapolis, who two years ago when we were brand new in town, welcomed us at our daughter's school she showed interest in us personally. She helped us connect with others. She even anticipated the types of questions I might have as a newcomer to this strange and foreign land of Minnesota. I have often been privileged to receive the hospitality of others. Um, these two women are some, but there's some in this church as well who've shown hospitality to me in really special ways. Um, there have also been many refugees who have welcomed us in pretty powerful um, ways in churches and far-off lands and places where we've never been. So I, this topic is really important to me. But before we launch in, I just invite you to think, when was the last time you were welcomed well? Who was it who invited you in? As a review of this series, we are using the table as a metaphor for Christian hospitality. That is the life posture and habit of welcoming others caring for practical needs and expressing the kind of generous love that we ourselves have received from God. We're talking about hospitality, not entertainment, not Martha Stewart, immaculate, trendy homes, or Pinterest perfect tables. Hospitality, while it can include food, doesn't always. We are talking about something that is so much broader and deeper from what we tend to think when we hear that word. Hospitality is about extending relationship and practical care to people who you wouldn't normally have in your intimate circles. As one author says, it's extending to strangers a quality of kindness usually reserved for friends and family. Commands to practice hospitality abound in scripture, even as a litmus test for who should be in leadership. Exercising practical care and involvement with those in need is a sign of maturity showing that the gospel story has truly shaped a person's heart and life. Remember, this is God's table. He is the host. He sets the table. He sets the tone. He extends the invitations. We imitate and we follow because we want to be like him. We love because he loved us. Last week, Amy answered the question, why? Why practice hospitality? With that backdrop, this week we'll be answering the question, who? Who are the invited guests at God's table? To start with, we are. Remember Amy's words last week about the Father's lavish welcome for us? With the story of the prodigal son, or the forgiving father, 
Amy reminded us that the heart of our God is this heart of a radical, generous, extravagant, lavish welcome. God is the Father, eager to welcome his children home. His love is not in the absence of a wrongdoing, but rather in spite of it. This is utterly foundational. Without this understanding and experience of who God is, it is very difficult, maybe even impossible, to extend the kind of radical welcome that he calls us to extend to others. We are not alone at the table, however. Our friends and family are there too, even the ones you find a bit difficult to be near. All of us are in need of connection, acknowledgement, and welcome, and expressing hospitality to friends and family can be a part of what we're talking about today. There are many opportunities to express God's love in this way to people in our lives and our friends and family, particularly when they're in need of specific care for a season. One of the examples I think of is small children who are needy strangers, for sure, at the beginning when they show up in our lives, people we need to learn to know and love and who are in so much need of care. Or perhaps it's caring for elderly loved ones in your home or people who are experiencing extended illness. All of these require patience and compassion from us. If you are in a season of caregiving to those in your life, I hope that you can see your practical care and concern are an act of Christian hospitality. Your little mundane everyday sacrifices of self, making beds, washing dishes, slowing down to help those who need it, these are all sacred acts of service. But do it as an expression of love to Jesus, not just because they're family and you are duty-bound. May that perspective sustain you and help you to find joy in the tedious and sacrificial service that you offer. So who's at the table? We are. Friends and family are. But the table goes so much further than that. Also to strangers. You see, God the Father's invited guests include the unknown, the unexpected, the uncomfortable, the inconvenient people of our world. The well-known story of the Good Samaritan is a hateful, helpful frame for this conversation, so I'd invite you to read it with me in Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. If you are following along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1581, 1581, or it will be on the screen as well. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be walking down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Notice the context of this story. An expert in the law asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life, to be right with God. And then pointing to the greatest commandments to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves, this so-called expert in the very same law sought to justify himself, trying to get Jesus to limit the definition of the neighbor to something a little more manageable. In response, Jesus tells him a story where the good guy was a Samaritan, someone the Jews regarded as heretics and ethnically less than themselves. And what is more, the good guy Samaritan steps in when the devout religious leaders fail to do so. The man in need in this story is a real stranger. The Samaritan knew nothing about the robbery victim he encountered. He could have been a decoy for all he knew, with robbers lying in wait to attack. Even if the robbers were gone, getting involved would be costly, risky, time-consuming, and cross all sorts of social and ethnic boundaries. So, who is your neighbor? In effect, Jesus was saying that the person in need is your neighbor. It would have been so much easier if Jesus had just given us a doable boundary, like your duty to neighbor only includes the people you know, or the people you like, or the people of your faith family, or something a little more manageable. But maybe that's not the point. So who are the strangers at God's table? A stranger is a neighbor, a person in practical need, vulnerable because they lack connections to the type of resources that protect us, like the rights of belonging to a community and the presence of family nearby. The New Testament commands us to practice hospitality in many places, two of which are in Romans 12 and Hebrews 13. And there they use the word in Greek, philozenia, meaning the love of strangers. Xanos, one part of that compound word, is used to talk about someone who is foreign, new, unheard of, an alien. Clearly, this could apply very directly to homeless people, refugees, new immigrants. But many others experience a sense of alienation as well, perhaps because they're facing chronic challenges of illness or unemployment, or because they are of a cultural or ethnic minority, or for some other reason, find themselves on the edge of the things that our society values. The treasured guests at God's table include people who look, act, speak, think, and live very differently from you and me. But let's be honest. Sometimes this is really hard for us because of our own brokenness and our difficulty in extending mercy, or because of our natural, very natural bent to self-protection. The strangers at the table include people who you might be tempted to think of in an us-versus-them mentality. Who is it that you find difficult to include, to welcome, to see as equal in the eyes of God? Is it the homeless person, the foreigner, the socially awkward, those with some type of apparent endless need or unchecked addiction? Maybe it's those who have a different view of politics, or sexuality, or other social norms? Who is the other in your life? It might be someone who has specifically wronged you, or a family member who is just too fill-in-the-blank whatever to be around. 
God the host invites and calls in all of those who are invisible to our society, invisible to you and me, even the ones that we fight hard to keep invisible because it's just too hard to look at. We often subconsciously take it upon ourselves deciding who belongs and who doesn't at the table, who deserves mercy and compassion and welcome. Perhaps you find yourself separating people into categories of worthy and unworthy when you think of welcoming others. Asking questions like, do they fall into the victim or perpetrator category? Do they have a criminal record? From our perspective, did they bring that pain on themselves? We might be tempted to use a litmus test of questions like, are they repentant enough? Are they trying hard enough? Are they showing a good effort? Before we decide if they're worthy of our mercy and care. Thinking back to the passage from Luke 10, we read, I wonder why the priest and the Levite didn't stop to help the man in need. The story doesn't tell us explicitly, but maybe they didn't get involved for one of these reasons. Please hear me, I am not saying that you need to agree with someone or their choices or that we should even fail to challenge or invite change in someone's life. Or even that a given person is safe for you to be in personal relationship with. There are definitely specific situations in which that would be unwise. But if there's a whole group of people, or people in a certain type of circumstance, or even an individual who you know you struggle to care about, I invite you to hold these people in your mind's eye for just a moment. Let's look at those people through God's eyes. You see, God has always had a very tender spot for those the world has rejected. Each and every one bears his image, has intrinsic value, is his treasured and precious creation. Even the ones for whom it is so hard for us to even see any hope of redemption or trace of humanity left. He loves them and invites us to see them through his eyes. I saw this meme on the internet this week that said, God has never made a person he did not love. John Wesley says it much more eloquently when he wrote, I look and see a beggar covered with dirt and rags, but through these I see one that has an immortal spirit made to know and love and dwell with God to eternity. I honor him for his creator's sake. I see through all these rags that he is purpled over with the blood of Christ. I love him for the sake of his redeemer. There is not a person on earth whose life is any less precious to God, each one reflecting God's image, his unique and beloved creation. One category of people who some today struggle to embrace, who see as a reason to fear or who hold at bay, are the world's refugees. As Devin mentioned, today is World Refugee Sunday. We learned this week that the number of people forced to flee their homes by violence and humanitarian disaster has risen once again now 68.5 million people, the highest number ever recorded, higher even than World War II. This Sunday is an opportunity for us to remember as a church those who suffer or flee because of persecution or violence. Now this is a special topic to me, obviously, because it lines up with my calling and vocation. As Devin mentioned, Tim and I are missionaries with IFR, and so this is obviously in line with my heartbeat. But I think that refugees and immigrants are distinctly special to God as well. In the Old Testament, there are more than 80 commands to the people of Israel about the resident foreigner, calling them to protect and include the foreigner among them 
You see, part of Israel's distinctiveness as a people was to be this inclusion and protection of the foreigner, people who were uniquely vulnerable because they had no citizenship, land, or family to call upon. Deuteronomy 10 is a great example of this. It says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Do you see it? The love and care of foreigners is tied to God's identity, to who he is. What kind of God is he? He is supreme, powerful, just, and merciful, as seen in his specific care for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Going on in the Old Testament prophetic books, the care for those on the margins was used as a measuring rod, a litmus test to see how God's people were doing in their following of his ways. Malachi 3.5 goes so far as to directly connect the lack of care for the vulnerable orphan, widow, and foreigner as equated with a lack of fear or reverence for God himself. Those are strong words. Jesus also lived out in the flesh what God's care for the vulnerable looks like. As Amy mentioned last week, he was often criticized and under pressure from religious leaders because he made a habit of hanging around with questionable characters. He showed us that his kingdom is always looking for those on the outside. We could look at the parable Jesus told in Luke 14, where he invited, the invited guest didn't respond to the invitation of the feast. And so the host instructed that all those the world had rejected be invited in instead. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Jesus told this story to show us what his kingdom is like and how very, very different it is from our own. We could look at Matthew 25, where Jesus identifies himself with those on the edges. He tells a story where those offering aid, time, and relationship to the hungry, the prisoner, and the foreigner are those offering those very same things to Jesus himself. It is Jesus' clear expectation that the faith of his followers will be evident in such concrete expressions of care and welcome to those in need. Someone might ask if Jesus appeared today, homeless, without a family of his own, having been a refugee, keeping company with questionable characters who could bring no good in his community's eyes. If he showed up today at City Church, would he be welcomed? I hope so. Turning back to the story of the Good Samaritan, I would like to point out two notable things about the way this Samaritan cared for his stranger neighbor. Since this is Jesus' direct response to what it looks like to love well, I think it's worth tuning in closely. The Samaritan's care, you see, was directed at someone who had no reason he could have expected him to repay. Every culture has some tradition of hospitality, often reserved for friends and family or visiting dignitaries or influential people. This kind of hospitality could be helpful for working a deal or keeping the favor or protection of someone in power. But in reality, I think it would be more clear to call this entertainment rather than hospitality in the Christian sense of loving the stranger. Because Christian hospitality is distinctly torn, turned toward those who cannot repay. This mirrors God's welcome of us which we cannot repay. In Romans 5, it says, You see, 
At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's welcome of us was before we cleaned up our act. His sacrificial, costly love is the model for Christian hospitality. Hospitality to those who cannot repay it is a living out and embodiment of what the kingdom of God is like, a powerful witness in the lives of those we include and those who watch. We have seen this time and again in our ministry. The welcome of those who don't deserve it or who cannot repay it is one of the most countercultural statements we could make today. Dr. Ruben Doss puts it this way, caring for those who suffer shows what the kingdom of God is really like. Where the weak, the poor, the vulnerable, the broken, the refugee, and the rejected are not discarded, but are valued and find that they belong. It speaks about the value and worth of each person in the economy of God. Because he created them, they are of equal value, regardless of their social or economic status, nationality, or ethnicity. Christian hospitality is turned toward those who cannot give anything in return. The Good Samaritan in the parable had no obvious duty, no family or friendship, shared ethnic or cultural background. There was no clear reason why he should be the one to take care of the man on the road. But he had mercy on him, and he got involved. See, Christian mercy toward the stranger, the neighbor, is about willing to get personally involved. It's about giving practical care, but even more, giving of yourself and your presence. The Good Samaritan didn't just feel pity and pass by or even bring it to someone else's attention and then go on about his, his business. He interrupted and rearranged his day to help the stranger, personally bandaged and nursed the man's wounds, and then guaranteed the cost of the care of his healing. I've learned through my work that giving of yourself is a whole lot harder for most of us than giving away stuff. It is messier, it is riskier, it is harder to measure, and altogether much more complex to practice personal hospitality. When we were new in Rome, we, had, um, we were trying to learn what was available for refugees in the city. And as part of that, Tim would go around and volunteer at different places that we heard churches and places that offered resources for refugees. One such place was a church that offered uh, meals to refugees and asylum seekers who were living on the streets. They offered hundreds of meals, several days a week. And Tim would go to volunteer and see the situation. But you see, the honored guests were lined up and squished on a very narrow sidewalk between a really busy street full of traffic and a tall iron gate designed to keep strangers outside of the church's space. And they would hand food in bags out the iron gate while they hurried people along. Go, 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 as they handed the lunches out. Now, I think the people who started that really intended well. I think they started from a good place of wanting to make a difference in a really difficult situation. And it is complex. But our friends would often tell us, you know, we're treated like animals here, even in the places that are just supposedly trying to help us. In some situations, we too try to do good while people, keeping people at arm's length for fear of the complexity of personal engagement, 
or perhaps because our assessment of strangers in need is that they need stuff, when in many cases what they want and need more is to be seen and welcomed in relationship. People need time, attention, and our presence as much as they need our charity. The biggest challenge of those on the margins is a sense of isolation and a loss of dignity. So the good news is, even if you have no money to give, you can make a difference. A moment of engaging and listening to someone who's usually invisible or just outright rejected by our world can make a lasting impact, whether you see it or not. Financial support for ministries and social services which care for people in need are desperately needed. But Christian hospitality calls us not to stop there, to go further, to extend a personal welcome. Not to everyone, we all have our limits, but at least someone. By welcoming people who are strangers in a personal way, we're not just dealing with crisis, food needs, and first aid, even if in some situations those things are involved. In hospitality, in this Christian sense, we become bridges, welcoming people on the outside into places where they might not otherwise dare to venture. When we invite people into places that feel normal or safe to us, but not to them, this is hospitality. Inviting someone to a meal is a wonderful gift, and the table is the great equalizer that helps us to connect in a way few other things can. But hospitality is about so much more than food. We welcome people into our spaces, our homes, our churches, our schools, our circle of friends. We connect them with relationships and a sense of belonging that feeds the heart as well as sometimes the belly. In the same season of our ministry in Rome, when we were learning what was happening in the city, we used the only resource we had, which was our apartment, to invite people in who we met on the streets. So we regularly had people for dinner, refugees and asylum seekers, and it was often chaotic and a little challenging. As Tim mentioned, cultural boundaries and differences are really real. And we'd invite three and get six, or invite 10 and get two, and you just never knew what was happening or who was coming, really. So I got pretty good at being flexible and making extra pots of rice in the background or doing what was needed to stretch a meal. But there was one situation I'll never forget. I think that day we had just invited like three or four people and we got more like 10 or 12. And I was busy trying to make that extra rice really quick, but it was also stressful to me because we literally didn't have enough room at our table. Like we didn't have that many chairs. And I thought, what are we gonna do? And I was so distressed because I so wanted to honor these people with a dignifying and hospitable, home-like welcome. So we were feeding our toddler daughter in the background and I was running around trying to make extra rice while Tim busied himself by trying to find extra things that could work as chairs. Here, have a crate. Here, sit on this footstool. What else can we find, quick? And when the food was finally ready, well after the intended time, and I brought it to the table, I just felt heartbroken to look around and see that our guests were so crammed elbow to elbow that they literally couldn't reach the table. Like, they couldn't get to it. And I thought, we have totally failed. What is going on? And then I saw one guy, one of these young men, probably 16 or 17 years old, sitting there at our table with tears in his eyes. And I said, I'm so sorry, what have we done? Is there something we could do to make the situation better? And he said, no, you don't understand. This is the first time I felt at home since I left. You see, yes, he needed food. He was hungry. But what he was longing for was an experience of family and welcome that doesn't have anything to do with what's on the table or how tight the chairs were in that space. I almost missed it. It wasn't about the food. 
he had been welcomed into our chaotic, messy family, and he finally felt at home. The person on the outside isn't just looking for food or a handout. Though they may be physically hungry, they are longing to be included and be given the dignity of belonging. So, I invite you to think again about who that is who you find difficult to welcome. What will help us? I think the first thing that will help us is empathy. Empathy born of personal experience goes really far. I think um, all of us at some point in our lives have been on the outside, maybe when moving to a new community or starting a new school or church or showing up at a new workplace for the first time. Or maybe you found yourself socially isolated by bullying or cliques of some sort. Probably all of us can relate to what that feeling of not belonging or knowing you're welcome feels like. Because of our work, we've often been the newbies, the people on the outside. Remember my friend Carmen, the one who taught me about popcorn and how the market works? When I asked her why she was willing to give of her time and cultural comfort to show up at my house and to pursue me, she said it was because of her experiences living abroad in China and when she felt so lost and realized how much she needed someone to welcome her in, she had learned empathy for my situation as a new language learner and outsider. I want to be that bridge person for others. Because of our myriad of experiences of painful realities of being the vulnerable foreigner, I now see anyone with an accent or a gap, cultural gap as a badge of courage. I'm ashamed to say that was not always so. So use those memories of times when you were the newcomer or the person on the edge of the community to extend compassion to the people around you who are struggling. The empathy helps us. But even more than that, knowing our identity is crucial. A lot of those Old Testament commands about caring for the foreigner that I mentioned include, like Deuteronomy 10, remember Egypt. Do this and remember that you too, people of Israel, were once slaves, that you were rescued and you were welcomed. Calling Israel to remember their experience to slaves, rescued as slaves, rescued by God. Taking it further, Leviticus 25:23, God reminds Israel of how things really work, saying, quote, The land is mine, and you are but aliens, temporary sojourners, and my tenants. You don't own the place, God reminds them. You are just passing through stewards of this land for a season. In the New Testament, in 1 Peter and Hebrews, among others, followers of Jesus are described as foreigners, strangers, citizens of a different kingdom, looking forward in faith to the redemption and recreation of a new heavens and a new earth, looking forward to our real home. The table is a leveling place, and only with clear understanding of ourselves as welcomed, forgiving, forgiven, loved guests do we have the courage to care across the lines that usually divide us from others. When we see that we have received welcome when we least deserved it, we have the capacity to see them, the others, as our fellow hungry guests, image bearers who together have been invited to God's table. So friends, start with one. Studies say large numbers make it really hard to stay connected and to still care. We're flooded with information these days about people far away and yet really insulated from the stranger and the needy person who is within reach of our own arms. 
partly because of the way we travel around the cities and because of the way we live, it's hard to even come into contact sometimes with people who are so very different from you. So this week, I invite you to work on noticing the people around you who God might be calling you to welcome into some space where you feel at home. Maybe they are at your church. Maybe they are at the park or in your neighborhood or somewhere along your commute. But noticing is the first step. We can't stop there. We do have to go forward to engagement, and we'll get into practical actions of what that looks like next week. But this week, let's prayerfully ask God to open our eyes to see the strangers around us. Friends, we need God's perspective, his vision, his eyes. We need to see God as he really is, the generous, willing, inviting, forgiving, gracious host. We need to see ourselves as his radically welcomed, dearly loved guests. And in turn, to see others, even the inconvenient others, as his image bearers, deeply loved and worthy of welcome. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have welcomed us, that you have brought us near and brought us in when we had nothing to give to you. Lord, we need your help to see those around us who are in need of love and care and hospitality. Would you open our eyes this week, open the spots where we are blind, where we have tuned out and not seen those who bear your image around us who are in need of care Would you open our eyes, Lord? We need your mercy. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.